Welcome to the What A Pain podcast. I'm Glyn Williams. And I'm Conrad Jacobs. So this is the next episode of the What A Pain podcast, and we're in the lovely city of Bath, um, having a nice day out, but there is a good reason for that. We've come to meet our friend, Dr. Jeremy Gauntlet-Gilbert, and today's episode is all about autism and paediatric chronic pain, with Jeremy being a, an expert in this field who's published quite widely. And hopefully we'll be having a very interesting conversation with him very soon. But uh, in the meantime, Conrad, how are you? I'm very well, Glenn. I'm really looking forward to today. I've known Jeremy for quite a long time and I've followed all his work with a lot of interest. So really, really looking forward to today's interview. How are you? Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. Um, you know, both of us, our football teams are faltering at the moment. So, you know, apart from that, <laughs> things aren't going too badly. Glenn, I, I thought we weren't going to mention football in this podcast, but now that you have, I'm afraid we're going to have to continue talking about this a little bit. Who do you support again? Uh, I'm a Manchester United fan. Oh, that's, I'm half so- our listeners have turned off already. So. <laughs> Glenn, I'm so sorry for you. I'm so sorry that this has not been a good season for you. But anyway, there is more to life than football. Not much, but a little bit. So one of the things we were hoping to do in the podcast is just to talk a little bit about things that we've been up to or things that have interested us in the world of pain. And I must admit, I have been reading a really interesting book for the last couple of weeks. One of my colleagues at work actually put me onto this. Um, It's called The Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe. And it's the story of the Sackler family, who most of us will know are incredible philanthropists all around the world you know, money into many, many different things, whether it be education or arts and literature. But they are the people behind OxyContin, okay. which we all are aware is the sort of opioid epidemic that um, has swept the world over the last 20 years. And it's quite a book. I have to say it's quite an eye-opener. It's very much sort of trailing how the companies that this dynasty have had going, their pharmaceutical companies, have developed a number of medications over the years, the main one being OxyContin um, and their you know, household medications that we all use and, you know, to be fair, very effective medications. But really, it's more a story of the American dream, as far as I can see, about how people who have been given the opportunity in America to build a life for themselves and done it incredibly successfully but it becomes a toxic mixture of putting that American dream, a good invention, and then putting American sort of, or not even American, but the sort of marketing strategy and the, the desire to make money and how those two things can impinge on each other and create this sort of tidal wave of opioid use that we've seen across the world and the consequences of that. Fascinating book. Um, I think it's it's very easy to read every page and just have outrage coming out of your ears. But if you try and think about it a little bit more deeply, I think it's really quite a complex. In what way do you feel this complex? Well, I don't think it's as straightforward. Uh, the way the book is sold, and, and I know there's a podcast about it as well, I think on BBC Sounds you can get it, but um, it's very much sold as a, it's this, this awful thing that's happened, perpetrated by this family who only really wanted to make money. And at one level, that's absolutely true. But on another level, there's... You've got to take into account they came from a family of immigrants who came to America, very poor. There was a way for them to make money. They were incredibly hardworking, hard-driven people who created, in a way, a very good product. But they sold it aggressively. But equally, us as healthcare professionals, we have to think, well, what was our role in that? We can't just blame the whole of the opioid epidemic on 
on this family, although obviously they had a large part to do with it, but us as healthcare professionals in some way were complicit in that. And, and why do you think that's been? Why were healthcare professionals so willing to prescribe well, this product? Maybe it's a lesson for us about evidence base and, you know, reading the literature and being critical of literature and thinking about what we were doing. And maybe it was that the knowledge, the medical knowledge at the time suggested that actually treating pain with opioids was the correct thing to do. And so when this heavily marketed opioid was put in front of healthcare professionals and they started to see cases where their patients improved, then there would be sort of every reason to keep prescribing this and think that it's is, is the right form of treatment, but not actually realising the unintended consequences of that, which some people noted at the time, but lots of people obviously didn't. Okay. And so, you know, one of the Sacklers sort of defences, and it sounds very trite in the sense that we've done nothing wrong, we've invented a very good drug, is partially true. But equally, the way they then dealt with that drug precipitated what what we are seeing and have seen over the last years. But I don't think the healthcare professions can come out of this unscathed either. So if I look at it in a slightly black and white way, then you have a product that has not been proven to be effective being sold to people who are desperate for a solution. Is that the right way to look at it? Or is that a little bit too black and white? I think it's a little bit too black and white. And um, I mean, I think the bit about people desperate for a solution is absolutely true. But I think it, it's more about a product that was put onto the market without maybe the right checks and balances being put in place. And yes, obviously, the the Sackler family and their, their pharmaceutical company were guilty of perpetrating that and encouraging that. But equally, us as a healthcare profession, we're, we were in some ways guilty of allowing it to happen. Okay. And uh, But I think, you know, equally, that's quite black and white as well. And there, there's so many multifactorial layers, I think, that could be, um, could be put into that as to why that was the outcome. Okay. You know, and it's, and it's about us, I think, recognising that and not letting it happen again, which maybe it won't, you know, because we may have a cannabinoid epidemic starting to wave through we may have a gab well some people would argue we already have got a gabapentinoid epidemic winding its way through so i think it's incredibly interesting and maybe you know without delaying jeremy too much longer that would maybe be a good topic for a podcast in the future i think that sounds like an excellent excellent topic so one last question about this clint is it still prescribed to children with chronic pain or or has do you think that's completely stopped now uh, ooh. Is OxyContin prescribed to children? Yes. Hopefully, mostly in the right situations. You know, it is still a good opioid that acts well, you know, has good efficacy. We know that. So if opioids are used responsibly and in the right situations, then they're still very effective medications which have a place in medicine. Is it prescribed to children with chronic pain? Yes and no, I think is the answer to that. I mean, certainly in as far as I'm aware, I can't think of many chronic pain clinics that will prescribe opioids, let alone OxyContin for children, except in some very specific cases. But is it prescribed in the, in the community? Yes, a bit, and maybe still in the right situations, but sometimes that doesn't, you know, without the correct stewardship and without the correct monitoring, that can easily boil over into a problem. Okay. 
That's really, really interesting. Thank you for that, uh, Glyn. I think it's time for our guest. I think we should turn to Jeremy. So, yeah, let's go in and uh, speak to Jeremy and see what he's got to say about autism and paediatric pain. Let's get to the main bit of the podcast then today. As we've already discussed, it's um, it's going to be an episode about autism. And we're delighted to have with us today Dr. Jeremy Gauntlet-Gilbert, who, with his full title, is the Principal Clinical Psychologist and Research Lead at the Bath Centre for Pain Services. But you don't mind if we just call you Jeremy. We'll this one. that, Glenn. Yes. Yes, yeah. So but thank you ever so much for being here today. Real um, pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah. As we like to do, we're going to ask you some questions to begin with, just to get to know you a little bit before we delve into the more meaty topics that we're going to talk about. So the first question for you, Jeremy, is what is your favourite place on Earth and why? Oh, my favourite place on Earth. I am a fan of the far north. I had a chance to go to Lapland in the north of Mm. Finland a few years ago, which was full of reindeer and exquisite owls and lakes. And um, if I had to choose one place... Although the weather was very English, it was cool and it was wet. But yeah, the far north, Lapland would be my place, Connor. So, favourite film and why? Favourite film. Well, you know, I'm a psychologist in the NHS, um, so I deal with quite complicated things all day. I prefer my films pretty simple when I get home in the evening. You know, I prefer Captain America punching somebody or something like that, because all my day is family stress and depression. So I do have a favourite. It's 20 years old. It's French. It's called Brotherhood of the Wolf. It's a wonderful, sumptuous period drama that's also a martial arts flick and a monster movie because it's based on the Beast of Gévaudan myth. So it's, it's absolutely brilliant. I'm not claiming it's Shakespeare, but I do love it. Jeremy, I like this question. Something that irritates you. And why? Well, you know what? I'm going to bring a professional irritation then, I think. The thing that irritates me is the idle use of the psychosomatic theory of pain. And when I I find my patients have been sort of told by somebody who's known them for only about 20 minutes that it's probably all in their head or probably due to the stress at their A-levels or something like that, there is something, I mean, I think it's a misunderstanding of the science to begin with, but there's, there's something slightly patronizing about that, telling young people in particular that we can know their minds and their bodies better than them, um, our short acquaintance. And yeah, that gets my goat, Conrad. I completely agree. It's very binary, of course, as well. Kind of either it's this or it's psychological. And it's much more complex than that. Well, it's not like that. Yeah. But how difficult do you find it is usually to unpick once you're there? You know, once you've got that patient in front of you who's who's come with that belief or has been told that that's the reason. They've been told that, haven't they? I think that as a a dedicated pain centre, that's one of the things we do, actually, is is we express a genuine validation and we're not going to dodge any emotional or behavioural issues that are important, but we believe that if they were suddenly happy, their pain would not vanish. And I think that's a critical thing that we do. Incidentally, we're in the middle of analysing and writing up some research on unhelpful clinical messages in chronic pain. And uh, yeah, a little little preview, that's going to come out strongly in the results. Looks like we might have to get you back for another page. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Booked. <laughs> but anyway, seeing as we've got ourselves onto pain, we've gone it around. Why did you get involved in pain? Well, it perhaps wasn't as directed as you might think. So I, I was always a psychologist who wanted to work in physical health. 
And when you're a psychologist, that means you're a slightly rare breed, because obviously the majority of us go on to work in mental health. So my original jobs were in things like HIV and in obesity. And honestly, I was looking for a very good unit, which did the kind of work that I liked, which was more oriented towards mindfulness work and acceptance-based psychological models. And, and Bath was the place for that. So I kind of slid sideways into pain rather than choosing it directly. Any regrets? <laughs> Actually, none. Though the HIV work was fascinating. Excellent. What is your favourite book or article about pain? Well, I don't know if it's my favourite, but it's the one that's struck me most recently. It is a personal account of a man who's a clinical ethicist in America, a bioethicist, who fell off his motorbike, had a horrible orthopaedic injury, went on to opioids in the post-operative phase, became entirely dependent, um, and had the most horrific time getting off. So it's called In Pain by a man called Travis Reeder, R-I-E-D-E-R. And I think what it's vividly written, and it just struck me how easily a, a very high-functioning person would get on to opioids and how rough, how rough the reduction process could be. So yeah, that one was vivid and uh, struck me recently. Yeah. Well, that probably is a very good counterbalance to what Conrad and I were talking about before you turned up, because I've just been reading the Sackler book about the em oh, empire of pain and how this yes. opioid crisis started. Recommendation? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's a fascinating book. I mean, as, as we sort of discussed, the whole interplay of all the things about, you know, big pharma, mm. America, capitalism, advertising, and, yeah. you know, and this belief, sort of similar belief to you were saying about the pain's all in your head, this idea that a pill will cure everything, that binary idea, how all of those things come together to give your patient probably the experience that they had after their accident. So Jeremy, as you know, we want this podcast today to be about autism and children with chronic pain. And we know this is a specialist interest of yours. You are published widely in that area. And I think as, as we all know, it's very difficult to come to a clinic now without seeing a patient who fits somewhere along the, the autistic spectrum, whether they've been diagnosed or whether it's, it's just a feeling that that's where they are, or probably they're waiting to be diagnosed as most of the patients are. So it just feels that it's everywhere. But um, what do you think, uh, from your research and your knowledge, that what's the prevalence of sort of autism in chronic pain clinics compared with prevalence in the community? Well, there's not a huge amount of data out there yet. The, probably the original paper, which I'm sure you guys have read, that came out of Stockholm, they looked at it in a tertiary pain clinic and looked, saw about 14%. Certainly in our service, when you use a slightly different measure, so you get a slightly different number, but we're seeing 25% there. So if you take your standard population estimate, people usually say about 2%. So if you, if you go from there, then obviously we're seeing very inflated numbers in pain services. But the maths are a little bit more complicated because if you take that 2%, that would usually include about half with quite significant learning disabilities and the majority male, probably about three to one male. And of course, in our pain services, what we're more commonly seeing is young women and very often without learning disabilities. So all of a sudden, the 2% actually whittles away. If you think about what the prediction would be, it drops to 1% and it goes well below 1%. And then you realise, gosh, we must be having 20 times or more the rate than you would expect on a population basis. And why do you think that is? Gosh, Conrad, that was an easy one. <laughs> I'm not sure because I think we have to explore two things. One, which is that there is some fundamental 
vulnerability to worse pain or struggling with pain that is conferred by being further up the autism spectrum. The other possibility is, now nah, it could be a bit of a methodological glitch. When you sit in very specialist pain services, you are seeing the people who could not be treated anywhere else. You are seeing the people who struggle specifically and worse than anywhere else. So it may be that we're slightly selecting for people who have complex problems and treatment-resistant problems. So we have to go a little bit population data as well to double-check. And I think the one study that comes out there is the, is the Whitney and Shapiro study, 2019, a big sample of 50,000 Americans who, I can't remember their metric of chronic pain, but in the neurotypical uh, people, they found it to be about 8%, but in uh, autistic people, about double that. So we're seeing huge multipliers in pain clinic, but even when you go to an unselected population, we're seeing double the rates of pain in people with autism. Mm. Do you think it's been changing? Because my perception over the last 10, 15 years is that I'm seeing much more, you know, I'm, I'm seeing patients now that I didn't see 10 or 15 years ago. And I think in general, the complexity of pain clinics is increasing mm. from lots of things. But it seems to be this particular group are providing a very big tranche of that. I think so. It's, it, it's an anecdotal impression, isn't it? But yeah. it's a really hard one to avoid. I mean, I've no doubt we've got our eye in better than previously, that we're better at picking it up and better at clocking it. But it's, um, yes, it's very hard to escape the impression there's more of it. Now, what's that about? You know, is there more autism in the population? Are other services struggling a bit more? So we're seeing more people in pain clinic. I don't really know. But it's such a regular feature of our lives now as pain clinicians. And it never seemed to be before. And we're seeing a lot of young people who are struggling with pain. Mm. And I guess one of my questions is kind of, there are lots of children out there who struggle with diabetes and who struggle with arthritis and struggle with other kind of long-term health conditions. Do you think that there's a rise of children with autism in those populations as well? Or is it just restricted to pain? Difficult question, I realise. Well, it's, it's a good question. I don't know of any data that comes to bear on that. I know certainly that our colleagues in chronic fatigue services would say they're seeing something very similar and have sought out advice and, and shared thinking about that kind of thing. Other medical specialties, I don't know. Mm. And it's harder to make a, a prediction, I think, because in some cases, I think autistic young people are actually more adherent to their medication and medication advice. So you can actually imagine them doing quite well with mm. diabetes or asthma and perhaps struggling less. So I'm not 100% sure, Conrad, but I'm certainly in CFS services locally. Yeah. They're seeing this. And I think, I think certainly also in the, our long COVID service, um, we're seeing quite a lot of young people with autism. One of the things about autism historically is that there'd been the belief that children actually autistic or people on the spectrum perceive pain in a different way, but they perceive it less. So it's almost like it's hyperalgesia. So they, you know, people would notice that maybe they fell over and banged themselves and they wouldn't have the same reaction as a yes. child, maybe at a different point on the spectrum, or that they would participate in things such as self-harm, which is obviously a, can be a very painful thing to do. And so therefore the corollary was that they don't feel pain. But now we think of it very differently. And I wondered again, what you think about that change in thinking over time, or do you still feel that there is maybe a group of, a subgroup within the autistic spectrum who do have hypoalgesia rather than hyper responses as yeah. such? I think part of the problem comes from the, as you say, subgroup is seeing this huge group, which 
stretches from people who don't need very much support through to people with quite profound learning disabilities. And I mean, one thing is, it feels like we can be confident that young people with autism can express pain differently. And certainly in, in some of our early qualitative data, which isn't published yet, the frustration expressed by young people and their parents that, yeah, we are expressing things differently and people aren't getting it. So there was young one young man who, who said that he tended to laugh, laugh in a rather forced way when he was in pain. And nobody was really buying that it was that bad because he was laughing. So, yeah, I think expression is an issue. And I think a lot of when the autism diagnostic criteria were created, which was back in the day when they talked more about hyposensitivity, they were very often looking at much more impaired young people. You know, they, they were looking at people with quite profound learning disabilities and who struggled with speech and verbal issues like that. Um, and you can't help but wonder whether that's slightly been conflated with the autism as well. So, yeah, I think we do think very differently about it. And if those population data are right, which is, you know, even an unselected population, it's double the rate of chronic pain, then I think we probably have to substantially reverse our presumptions. But there almost certainly are still some young people out there who have a lessened sensitivity. Okay. Jeremy, what do you think the role is of sensory issues in the perception of pain? Well, clinically, it seems to be enormous. I mean, I, I, remember, I remember vividly a young woman in her mid-teens who was incredibly articulate and taught me a lot with autism, who described driving down from the northeast of England to get to our service. So first of all, she was stuck in a car, which was difficult for her pain. And then everybody else would take a break in a service station. But a service station for her was kryptonite. Basically, it was deafening. It was full of people. There were vending machines. There were, you know, so anecdotally, it's always seemed that there's been a huge, a huge convergence. And in our our early qualitative data, a lot of people are talking about the three aspects of pain, anxiety, and sensory sensitivities. So the sensory sensitivities rack up, triggering the anxiety, you know, worsening the pain, or another version or direction of that triad. So the three of those things interacting would be what my bet is on for difficulty. And this is, of course, exacerbated at school. You go into a busy school, a busy environment, lots of people shouting, running, unpredictable events, lots of people, bright lights, etc. So schools, from a sensory perspective, are an unsafe environment for many of our young people. I think it's a huge barrier, isn't it? And it's, it's a mistake to think this young person with pain is struggling to get to school, so it must be because of the pain. Well, it probably is. But yeah, you need to take that broader perspective, as you're saying, Conrad, and appreciate what they're up against. I would say that I don't think hospitals are much fun, either. I would agree with that. There's some evidence that psychological flexibility, behavioural rigidity may be a mediator in this as well. How do you see that? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? I sometimes think I sell a version of pain rehabilitation that doesn't suit neurodiverse people very well, because in my, in my vision of it, everybody would be really tuned into their bodies, well tuned into their emotions, know where their pain level was at, and they would be willing to change tack quickly and easily, pace themselves, prioritise, you know, leave that thing alone, don't finish it because you're already tired. And I do think that can be a terrifically difficult philosophy for a neurodiverse young person to come across. I don't think it means it isn't a good idea, but I think it's a steeper hill to climb. You get young people who aren't great at tuning into their bodies, and then with regard to the rigidity thing, um, tend to like to complete tasks, tend to like to see things done. Sometimes particularly young people who 
who, you know, have strong cognitive skills, have very high standards for themselves, you know, push themselves, drive themselves at school. And the prospect for them of just mm. taking a break, taking a pause, being flexible, probably still is useful, but I think it's much tougher. Yeah. Many of the young people I speak to have an aversity to change mm. and like their routine, like predictability. And sometimes the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And sometimes they say to me that they would rather stay where they are not take any chances rather than risk anything and make things worse. Well, I think so. And I think the issue of making things worse is substantial, mm. isn't it? Because I know you've both, you're both aware of this concept of autistic burnout. Mm. Maybe, that's, maybe that's too strong a word. But a lot of these young people seem to be tilted into a very difficult state quite easily. As we're saying, the mixture of sensory sensitivities at school, struggling with camouflaging themselves socially and trying to fit in and appear the same as everybody else, plus feeling really sore. You know, I understand why they might be a little bit risk averse, you know, <laughs> alongside liking things the same way. Things can genuinely become really hard for them quite fast. We were going to get on to autistic burnout, Jeremy, which is how you preempted us, which is great. What would be great? I mean, could you just explain to us what you think autistic, or what the meaning of autistic burnout is? Well, I, I don't know if I can give you a textbook answer, but I do think it is this, this malignant combination of people who are just having to do so much more processing to be in a social context. You know, I mean, it's more fluid for those of us who are neurotypical. They're trying hard to read situations, fit in, moderate and monitor their own behaviour. So there's a huge cognitive load handling there. They're finding it hard. They're not necessarily liking the social aspect of it. They're getting a sensory overload on top of that, finding things reasonably overwhelming from that point of view. And I think I think some people who who need to stim or to move in a particular way are very often fiercely clamping down on their urges to make certain movements which would usually make them feel more comfortable, you know, make them feel more at ease. And they're just having to strain not to do that. Mm. And then possibly what the burnout thing means is that people tend to just decompensate quite fast, you know, and, and find it, find themselves in an unmanageable position, really just can't do anything with themselves. And if you talk to parents, they'll say, I can't do anything with them. You know, just you get yourself to a position where it's quite hard to retrieve yourself. Um, and very often the people just need to retreat. So yeah, in my understanding of the concept, I think that's what it's about. It sounds, you know, I totally agree, but it sounds very similar to a lot of the patients we see wherever they happen to fit onto the spectrum. So do you think it's more prevalent or more you sort of more unique presentation in the, the sort of more autistic children? Well, it seems to be, doesn't it? I mean, you know, when you're a psychologist, you think about like, what should I teach these parents to kind of manage this behavioural difficulty? And you, know, you spend a lot of your time training on that. And I think the experience of seeing the more impaired young autistic people is a very humbling one, because you see you see a lot of parents who are doing extremely capable, sensible, solid parenting and, and finding it find themselves unable to help their young person in this difficulty. So yes, I think the more, the further up the autism spectrum people are, then the more profound the states of withdrawal and difficulty can be. And the more difficult it is sometimes for clinicians to understand them as well. Very recently, a patient said to me, very clearly, she looked at me straight in the eyes and she said, you don't understand what it's like to have autism. Mm. And she felt that there was a deep lack of understanding, not just... Mm in the clinical team, mm. but also certainly in the wider world and in her family and the school and the teachers, etc. And 
from that position, she found it very difficult to trust as well. And I thought that was very important, that the trust wasn't there because she felt that we couldn't quite understand where she was coming from. I think that's, I think that's very fair. And I think what's really nice there, Conrad, is you, you know, we've just encountered the, very much the voice of a young person. And I think that's one of the, the critical things here, isn't it? So I don't know if you guys have heard of the, the double empathy problem. You know, I'm sure you have. It's been expressed like that. You know, you sit there and we think, you know, ah, oh, this young person with autism is going to have difficulties reading my mental states. But yes, it goes both ways, doesn't it? You know, we are not understanding people. We're not understanding how they express things. And also, you know, it does still go the other way around. It is very easy to do the wrong thing and disengage a young person with autism. You know, I think it's easier for us to blunder as clinicians. And you do meet young people who do seem very burned by their experiences mm. and, and struggle to trust. Exactly. And so I think you know, there's really an argument for treading much more carefully and, and being more canny and thoughtful in our approach. Mm. So uh, following on from that, Jeremy, I just wondered if I could ask you about resilience in this group. I mean, resilience isn't a word I particularly like, but it does describe something that a lot of pain patients have trouble with, you know, in, in showing resilience with the symptoms they're experiencing and the treatment plans that we put in place for them. And so I just wonder within this group of children with autism, whether you see more or less resilience or you see certain strengths that they have because of their diversity that help them with pain management. That's, that's a great question. I mean, it's, it's hard to tell whether you describe somebody as less resilient or with more challenges, isn't it? You know, I mean, it feels like these young people have just got more coming at them from more angles with this sort of dual diagnosis of autism and pain and then the sensory sensitivities. So yes, because we're clinicians and we work with people with difficulties, we see with the young people who are struggling to get into school environments and who, and who are easily put off. But absolutely it goes the other way, doesn't it? I'm sure you've both had the experience of, of the young person with autism who can be vastly more consistent and focused and can use a routine much better than the next person. You know, we have people who, who are much, much more adherent with their physiotherapy and their exercise plans than the next young person. One of the, the great advantages is that these young people very often abstain from various forms of teenage drama as well. You know, once their peers are getting bent out of shape about what's happening in their friendship groups, sometimes these young people are, are both disinterested and much more focused and much more sort of locked down on, on the things that, that matter to them. So I think consistency and a routine and a sense of standards and interestingly sometimes their their social style is protective so jeremy i mean it's been fantastic so far the complexity of these children is obvious i think mm. but the million dollar question obviously comes down to what do we do about it so you know should we be treating these young people with autism any differently and if if so what do we do differently well it is the biggest question isn't it it's tricky because, you know the old saying, when you've met one young person with autism, you've met one young person with autism. So I guess we'll try and do the best generalisations we can. And I think, going back to your point, Conrad, we do meet young people who seem to have been quite burned by their encounters with the, with the healthcare system, haven't enjoyed them, have been very put off. And so it is, it's incumbent on us to think very hard about how we make that not happen. So um, I, think, I think that some of the, what we regard as the basic clinical encounter is tricky. I mean, with a young person, I might think, I want to put them at ease. So I'll bring them into a quiet side room, talk to them one-on-one. -on -one, and if they can't express themselves very well, 
I'll just ask them more and more sort of probing questions until they can get across what they need to get across. Now, that sounds good, but to a young person with autism, it really may not be. This means I'm locked in, <laughs> locked in a room with an adult who's making loads of eye contact with me, you know, where I feel obliged not to stim or to do some of the things that would make me more comfortable. And then if he asks me a question like, oh, what's your pain like? And I say, oh, I didn't really know. Then he just asks me the same thing again. You know, psychologists are terrible for follow-up questions and, and, and asking more and more probing questions about emotional states and things like that. They can quite easily feel persecutory for a, a young person with autism. So I think there's some things even about the setup of the encounter. You know, our clinic is running 20 minutes late, which is fine by us. But by the young person who's had to really get a lot of a lot of energy and motivation to come and has been reluctant and likes things to run as predicted, um, we've already started on the wrong foot. So I think there's lots of answers to your question, Glenn, but, but even paying attention to the, the first appointment, the setting, the interpersonal context would be a place to start. I think that's a lovely, lovely answer. What about subsequent sessions in terms of pain management? Should we adapt our pain education classes? Should we adapt? Should we be seeing young people with autism in group settings? Should we be adapting the actual treatment? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a big piece of our work is explaining how chronic pain is real and horrendous, but not harmful. That's a big piece. And traditionally, how we've always done that is obviously with metaphor, as you both know. Metaphors about broken fire alarms or, or it's a software problem, not a hardware problem. I think this is particularly vexed because I use a therapeutic style, which is pretty heavy on the metaphor as well. So my experience is that it's not that the young people with autism can't do metaphor. You just need to be a little more careful about it and possibly tailor it to their, their interests a little bit more. So, so I think pain education is still relevant. I think it's still really important because... Like everybody else, they're judging these sensations they're having in their body and they're trying to work out what to make of it. We've got to help them with that. But um, we might be a little bit more circumspect about just rolling out our stock standard patter, if you like, on what we'd usually do with anybody else and check that we're actually getting across what we think we are. And would you, I know you do group programmes here in Bath. Do you sometimes have to adapt the programmes for young people with autism? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I think we've got to be, again, sensitive to the fact that some of the things we emphasise can be tricky. So our, our programme definitely goes quite hard, quite early, with self-awareness in general and with emotional self-awareness in particular. And we, we tend to emphasise that, ask a lot about that, really help people get closer to their experience. And this can be a bit of a cliff to crash into for some, some young people who are further up the autism spectrum. So we just had to get a little bit smarter about whether we, whether we help young people perhaps pick from lists of words or colour rainbows of emotions and things like that. I think in many ways, again, it's a generalisation, but young people with autism prefer a question that has a clear answer and the emotions and the subtleties of the body is not their favourite domain. So if I rock up to somebody and ask an open question, how are you feeling? It's probably the worst flipping question in the world. I mean, as a psychologist, it's my favourite question. But it's an open question, which doesn't have a clear answer. They don't know where I'm going with it. And they're having to engage with the domain of their being, which isn't particularly easy or clear to them. And so being in a group can be a little bit more difficult sometimes. Hmm. But can it sometimes be helpful for young people with autism and pain as well? 
I think that the group setting, I mean, you could argue as a clinician that it would be, you know, therapeutically helpful for some young people to be practicing being in a group when you know, hopefully, that that group is more contained and less chaotic than the school environment and it'll be warmer and more supportive as well. And then very often we get more than one young person who is autistic in the group. And that can be that can be very solidly validating for them. It's just like, oh, right, I'm a, I've got some people here who are on the same wavelength as me. I don't think it's always easy because you are trying to make one size fit all for a half neurotypical, half diverse room. So I think it's it's tricksy. But I think it's I think it's what we've got in many ways. And I think for the young people with autism, you can see that very often they'd have strong preferences. You know, I'd like I prefer an individual treatment. And I think we need to listen to their voices, but also make a bit of a judgment because they very often don't know ahead of time what this group will feel like. And they're judging it on the basis of past slightly singeing experiences with school um, and in other social groups that haven't worked for them. So, yeah, we're going ahead with our groups. But goodness, you have to stay up on your toes. Yeah, of course. You, of course. you sort of alluded in there by saying this is what we've got, mm. which to me sounds like a resource, you know, which we all struggle with, you know. So if you had... If we all, you know, had more money, more resources, more time, would you do anything differently in treating these children than we do now? It's a really good question. And I think one of the questions we've asked ourselves is, if we could have an all-autism group, would we have an all-autism group? And, and I just don't know the answer to that question. I can't tell whether that would be a really immensely validating and helpful thing for the young people, or whether it's, it's actually helpful for them to have some neurotypical peers to interact with because they will not go home to an all autistic group so so i slightly answered a different question there Ken, and i'm aware of that i think we could spend more time training our people honestly you know we try to be aware of it as as a service but i think we could spend more time training our people i think we could spend more time since we do have a somewhat programmatic kind of program where we do something at the beginning something in the middle something at the end you know, we probably could go with just overhauling it and seeing, right, okay, let's just see what we would do for every single treatment component if we were doing it angled towards people with autism. As it is, I think it's a little bit more down to the sensitivity and wit of individual clinicians, which is not too bad. And I suppose the, the controversial question to that is, are we the right place to be treating these young people? Mm. Are we the right clinics for them? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes, absolutely. I think... I think that young people with autism find a lot of the things we do difficult, but I don't think that means that they're not the right things for them. I think emotional self-awareness is really rough. But then if you've got somebody who regularly gets into this burnt-out state and falls off the edge of the planet and it looks awful, you know, they just look so distressed, you know, you think, no, actually, it would be great if you could have known sooner that you were getting close to the end of your tether. It maybe didn't have to be like that. Young people struggle with activity management, as we've said, with the pacing and the moderation and modulation and not being 120%. But that doesn't mean it's not a good idea. You know, you still do see lots of autistic young people who who have a huge propensity to to overdo it. And so just because it isn't easy, and sometimes the way we deliver it is not easy for them to pick up, I think they still need to find a a different way to move their bodies to manage their, their feelings, to, to look at their levels of exertion and what they're doing in their day. So, 
So yeah, I think we I think we need to up our game rather than sack it off would be would be my view. Yeah. I like what you're saying about upping our game, and that's certainly what we're trying to do. And what we're finding ourselves doing more and more is almost acting as an autism service, mm. in the sense that we are talking to school about yes. adapting the environment, about allowing a child to wear headphones, mm. about all kinds of issues to do with autism that dampen the sensory input, that dampen anxiety and pain as a result. So I think we can see the, many of these children, but we need to adapt a little bit and we need to do slightly different things for them. But Jeremy, do you think that there are maybe children who are on the autistic spectrum who need to be seen by other services first? I think there's two questions. One is... Do they need to be seen by other services first so that something can happen that will make it easier for them to get to us? I don't know about that. I do think the issue of diagnostic overshadowing is a big one. You know, if, if a young person has what seems to us like a pretty evident autism, but there's been lots of focus on their pain, the pain has been the thing that everybody has attributed all their difficulties to, then one of the questions then maybe is, do we make sure that's clocked and appreciated first? It's difficult, isn't it, to go back to Lynn's question. If we had all the money in the world, then then that would probably be lovely, wouldn't it? You know, we would get people a rapid diagnosis. We would stick them in an excellent educational provision, and then we would try pain rehabilitation. And I would very much like to live in that world. We don't live in that world, but I do think we can be the services that that very often are the services that insist that, yes, I know this looks like it's all pain, Mm. but no, it isn't. We know kids with pain. And yes, they struggle, but they don't struggle in this way. And I think that's that's one of the places where we can be insistent and help young people to get on a diagnostic track or a track of understanding themselves better. Yeah. And where are we in terms of outcomes? I mean, have you got data on the outcomes of the yeah. these young people as compared to maybe other people who come through the clinic? Yes, it's still going around the review stages. It's not out yet. The bottom line is that, that the more autism features you come in with, the worse you're doing in terms of mood at time one when you're coming through the door, the worse you're doing psychosocially, so school, friends, things like that, but you're no different physically, which I guess kind of makes intuitive sense, really, doesn't it? Now, the good news is that if you look at at least the short-term change over the course of the programme, it seems to change as much as anybody else. So something good is happening, but you have to caveat with that, with the fact that they're starting at a lower place. So they're probably still, yes, they improve, but they're not going to get to the level of, of the neurotypical kids. So, I mean, that gave us a little bit of hope that actually giving people the usual intensive, careful pain rehabilitation treatment certainly isn't hopeless, let's put it that way. But also it, it spurs you on to think, you know, actually we're probably discharging these kids who are still at a lower level than we'd like in the mood domain and in the dealing with friends, school, that kind of thing aspect. That's interesting. About 16% of the children who come to our clinic come with a diagnosis of autism. And then about 16% are either on a pathway or we know after one or two sessions, they are likely to be on the autistic spectrum. So you mentioned that in your service, you're seeing about 25% is autistic. What do you do when you know that the child is on the autistic spectrum, when you know that it's part of the whole picture? Mm and part of the formulation, what do you tend to do? Well, if we as a clinical team are sitting there and thinking it, and we as a clinical team are sitting there thinking, this is here, this is important, it's not really possible to understand this young person. 
without understanding their processing style, then obviously we can't just sit there and not say anything. But on the other hand, it can be, it's obviously quite a tricky piece of clinical work, isn't it? To take, well, usually starting with a parent, you know, who've come for a semi-physical rehabilitation course. And then one has to be quite circumspect before one kind of drops the idea on them that your child might have a lifelong, you know, neurodevelopmental issue. But I think we do do it. I don't know, is it worth saying anything, Conrad, about how we go about that? I think that would be helpful. So I think, I think we do usually start with a parent. And it's worth exploring. Every parent will acknowledge that their children, neurotypical or not, have a temperament. And so if, if you ask, start asking the parent of an autistic young person, even if it's subtly, so how, you, how would you describe their temperament for an early age? Then they will almost always acknowledge that they had a particular style. You know, I mean... You can ask the obvious early questions about like sensory sensitivities, but uh, I'd like to gauge, you know, how close a parent feels to, to thinking about this issue. And very often they'll go, goodness me, yeah, they were different from the earliest stage. I compared them to their older brother, you know, and they were completely different at this age and that age. So do you think that most parents already have a bit of a sense that their children might be a little bit different and maybe have thought about it already? I think I would say most I have a sense that their children are different and that they might mm. say, goodness me, there's no point arguing with him, you know, and, uh, you know, he's been always been so adamant, you know, and they'll pick out that stuff. So it doesn't necessarily come as a surprise. Well, it makes it a lot easier on the clinician when they said, well, I have actually thought whether they might mm. be able to, and then you sort of breathe a sigh for mm. and think, well, this is going to be easier on me. <laughs> Otherwise, I would draw a bit of a word picture, I think, and say perhaps with a parent, well, you know, there might be a comprehensible pattern here. You know, if you have a young person, you've described how they struggle a bit socially, you know, not very good with change. And, and you know, they, goodness me, his interests are, are fierce and deep. And then very often the parent will say, oh, you think he's autistic? <laughs> Sometimes the questions that you ask lead parents to the issue. I think so, yeah. And, and again, I would not, I wouldn't be seeing the goal of my consultation as saying, I need you to accept that your daughter is mm. autistic. Yeah. I would be, right, your daughter has a, a very strong and particular temperament which has strengths and weaknesses. It does seem to us to fit in this bracket. We think it might be a merit if you go away and have a think about that. Have a look at these videos. Mm. Have a look at this book. You know, mm. chill on it for a couple of nights and see if you, see if you think you mm. recognise some of these things. And if you think you do, then come back to us. We can talk about where to go and how and if we raise this with the young person. I, th I think that's really interesting, Jeremy, because um, actually we tend to see quite a lot of the opposite where the parents come in with the diagnosis ahead of time and they're very keen to tell you that they're autistic or that their child has those sorts of traits involved. But anyway, we'd just like to end with one final question, if that's all right. And uh, we just wonder what you find really enjoyable about working with this group of patients. I love you've asked me that. <laughs> I mean, this is it seems that there's such a group of singular and characterful young people to me. And I love the uniqueness. I love that sometimes I appreciate and actually slightly sympathise with, with young people who really care less about what other people think of them. You know, the directness. Yeah, it can be incredibly honest mm. and straight and don't get involved in teenage drama and seem to be in some ways more unrepentantly themselves, at least if they get a chance to be. Mm. It does sometimes hurt your heart to watch how hard they have to camouflage because um, you, you look at them and you, th I don't know, I think you probably have as well formed the conviction that this isn't a disability, it's a difference. Mm. And it's got 
extraordinary strengths and they can come at problems and issues with the most humorous and, and interesting angles in my experience. I think that's a lovely ending of this interview. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, guys. Been a pleasure. Well, this is um, Conrad and I sitting around chatting after Jeremy's um, gone home. And I thought that was brilliant. Really enjoyed that. Very interesting talk. I mean, Jeremy's obviously a person who's dealt with patients with autism and pain and thought a lot and researched a lot about it. And he's got some obviously very interesting thoughts that we came across. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of things for us to go away and think about. And it will, as he says, keep being a challenge for us as medical professionals in the field, because then we're going to see more and more of these children as the years go on. Definitely. I thought he was very knowledgeable and I really, really enjoyed talking to him about this subject and I've learned a lot. And I certainly want to invite people who've listened to this podcast to give us some feedback about what he said, about some of our comments, and particularly also people with pain who are autistic or who are on the autistic spectrum. We'd really like to hear from you. So do give us some feedback, ask us questions, give us your comments and write to whatapainpodcast at gmail.com. So Conrad, we'd better leave it there. Um, hopefully we'll see you all soon for the next episode. And with a bit of luck by then, both our teams will be winning again. <laughs> My team is currently giving the league away, I'm afraid. Um, but let's not talk about that too much. See you, Glenn. See you. Take care. Bye.